From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown. Thanks for joining us inside the Strategy Room. Today, we'll be talking to the authors of one of our most highly read articles, Why Digital Strategies Fail. Tanki Caitlin is a senior partner in McKinsey's Boston office. He's a leader of our digital strategy practice and helps guide McKinsey's digital quotient initiative, working with clients around the world to deliver rapid and sustained growth by identifying their digital strengths and weaknesses. Paul Wilmot is a senior partner in McKinsey's London office and a global leader of digital McKinsey. He works with clients on digital strategy and organization, process automation, and customer experience design. Let's start with a question about the general premise of your article, Why Digital Strategies Fail. What prompted you to write the article? We were prompted to write the article based on conversations with many clients. What we're seeing is that clients in every sector and geography are having to adapt to a very fast-changing context as digital technology, um, analytics, AI changes the operating environment. And some of those clients are being super successful with their new strategies, but many, unfortunately, are finding themselves making less progress than they'd like. So we thought it might be helpful to capture the reasons why those that are struggling are struggling and to try and tease out what really makes the difference. Thank you. You recently said that one of the questions you often discuss with clients highlighting the difference between digital disruption and some of the previous disruptions. Could you talk a little bit more about those differences, please? Well, disruption is not new and arguably technology-driven disruption is not new either. Previous businesses have had to adapt to you know, new technologies in transport, uh, in communications, and so on. What's different this time is simply the pace of change. So one measure we sometimes look at is how fast new technologies are rolled out across the global population. So if you took a technology like radio, it took many decades for that technology to, to be distributed to, across the population globally, whereas technologies like social media, for example, are finding themselves globally deployed within just a few years. Uh, somewhat spuriously, Pokemon Go is one of the fastest uh, uptake technologies we've ever seen. But more seriously, the technologies which are impacting business are coming along in fast waves and rapid succession. And this is just forcing a much faster pace of change. To me, there are three elements that are different. Paul talked about the most important one, which is the pace is so dramatically faster. There are two other differences, which is uh, the reach and the scope um, this is really the first time that we see a level of disruption that happens on a global basis. Um, the rise of mobile phone, the rise of connectivity really affects pretty much every country in the world at the same time. And therefore, it leads to uh, uh, the emergence of global player and global solutions. And uh, beyond the, the reach, which is global, the scope is also the first time we see the disruption happen to pretty much all industries or most industries, uh, which leads to the redefinition of ecosystems. And that combination of incredible fast pace, global reach, and multi-industry scope is leading uh, fundamental changes in the way companies need to think about their strategic posture. Thank you. What, what sectors, if any, are seeing the biggest impact of digital disruption? Have you seen any sectors that have been immune, in your opinion? And um, which ones have, that have been affected 
have typically responded most favorably to digital disruption? Well, we're seeing that every sector is experiencing a level of digital disruption, but each sector is experiencing it in a slightly different way and in a slightly different pace or at a slightly different pace. So, for example, if you're in the uh, the media industry, uh, notably music or, or film, you've already seen a, a fundamental shift in, uh, in the business models in that sector driven by new technologies and new customer behaviors. And to Tanke's point, that's been a, a global shift. Uh, other industries, largely those industries which are with a higher uh, asset base and uh, stickier customers, for example, in, um, in B2B, they're seeing a disruption which is uh, playing out more slowly, but nonetheless may be equally significant in the long run. When you talk to clients about the types of returns they're seeing, oftentimes addressing digital can be quite expensive. What kind of returns are your clients seeing in their digital investments? And could you comment more broadly on the impact of digital on profitability? Yes. So we have done um, research work to estimate what digital is doing to profitability and also to growth. And what we're seeing is those industries which are going through more rapid disruption, like media, like telecommunications, are seeing a, a very material impact unfortunately detrimental to all but the losers. What tends to happen is that digitization is creating great transparency on prices and with that some margin compression and tending to lead to both slower growth and, um, and lower profitability. The good news is that for those, who, those companies that really grasp the nettle and are proactive and take a leadership stance with digital, that they're able to more than compensate for that overall market disruption and, and in fact, gain both share and profitability. What digital is fundamentally doing, and the reason it creates enormous value for the customer at the detriment of the incumbents in the industries, is not only the greater price transparency, but it's also an often disintermediation. There are many goods and services that you can go and purchase directly from the provider, very often unbundling. Uh, if you think about the way we used to buy newspaper, there will be the sports section, the weather section, the political section, the entertainment section, and now you can go to different media outlets to consume exactly the content you want when the same applies to most of the offering. And then, you know, a push for greater commoditization. Um, very few of the executives we work with realize or assume that actually digital will be a source of value destruction for their industries and therefore are not taking the commensurate actions in their strategic plans. You asked about the returns people are seeing on their digital investments. I think we're seeing a very mixed range of returns. So some firms are actually seeing extremely good returns and I would say a, in the best cases, uh, they're saying um, you know, sub one year payback for some fairly substantial investments um, and uh, you know very high IRR, MPV or however else you choose to measure the investment. And what is common in those cases that, that they're being extremely focused on the investments that are going to move the financial performance of the company. It's very easy to spread digital investment around and um, have hundreds or thousands of different experiments running. Um, it's also very easy to get um, sidetracked with new innovation builds, for example, uh, when sometimes um, the, you know, the financial return is to be found elsewhere, which may be 
for example, uh, automating sGNA processes. The second point I'd like to make, though, is that on average, most clients that we're working for are uh, not investing the uh, the requisite amount in in digital because of the effects that Tangi and I were just talking about. There is uh, quite some downside risk for not acting at pace here, and that calls for unprecedented levels of investment. Of course, that's only possible if you are able to find a way of accelerating returns so that you can uh, manage the overall economic profile. So what happens if you can't do that? Is that when the sort of other disruptors come in and make the investment, but also it can lead to some pretty scary results in the incumbent industry? I mean, the, the reality is that there are some businesses which are fundamentally uh, will become more difficult going forward. You've, you've, you know, you've seen that with the uh, uh, certain aspects of the music industry, for example, you know, without getting into too many examples, you can see that in in most sectors there are parts of the business which are fundamentally threatened. The good news is that you know, at the same time, there are many, many new opportunities arising. So Tange mentioned earlier that digital is allowing firms to explore new sectors and to cross sector boundaries that which historically were were very impermeable, and that can provide some significant upside. And we're seeing that, for example, with telcos going into financial services. And more generally, I would say, when you look at different industries and you map against that, what is the magnitude of the disruption and what is the pace of the disruptions, you find that the strategic posture that you need to take to respond will be quite different. So the, the answer to your question, Sean, requires some nuance. But if you are in a place where the magnitude of disruption is high and the pace is sufficient, uh, three things become true. Uh, the first one is the market will reward, according to our data, the first mover. There's really no premium in being able to engage, move, and test and learn faster and sooner. Um, so it's not only about the magnitude of investment, but the timing. It's one, one of the first ones to be committed to digital. The second thing is that it leads to a winner-take-all type of uh, economy, which means that you need to invest at a scale that allows you to become the market leader. Trying to move from number seven to number six in the marketplace is no longer a wise strategy. And then the third one is you need to be able to assess both the upside of your winning strategy as well as the downside of not taking action. And one of the biggest mistakes that we find companies do is underestimating the downside. Um, we have seen in many industries the leak table change dramatically quickly. Uh, the biggest predictor of um, success is actually once not an attacker is entering your space, but once one of the leading incumbents is becoming religious about digital and starts making the size of investment and the commitment to digital, at that point, the race is on, and uh, we see changes happening extremely rapidly. You spoke earlier, Tangi, about this notion of disintermediation and also disaggregation. Um, one of the questions that we wanted to cover was this notion of business-to-business versus business to consumer and how impacted each area is. You know, a lot of the examples that you've talked about have been more of the B2B, sorry, B2C variety. Um, how, how is what you're seeing in terms of the rate of digital disruption in the B2B space um, going compared to business to consumer? If you think that the impact of digital can affect uh, the experience of your customer, the distribution channels, 
uh, but also your cost structure and your ability to expand beyond industries. Uh, most people talk about the first two and therefore lead with B2C examples. But you're right to call out that B2B is equally affected. When you look at supply chain management, when you look at automation of processes, when you look at the use of data to drive to a predictive maintenance, um, the economic impact and the ability to drive the cost down and the margins up has proven to be equal in the B2B versus the B2C uh, companies. Um, the, the front end of the disintermediation uh, and the rise of the uh, market leaders in terms of direct-to-consumer is less prevalent in B2B, but uh, the nature and the size of the economic opportunity is pretty much equal. Thank you. In, in your article, you both talk a lot about ecosystems, the importance of ecosystems, the rise of ecosystems, and and you, you know, Amazon is a, a, a very big example. Can you comment on the impact of ecosystems in more of a B2B construct rather than B2C? So the digital is, uh, uh, is creating opportunities for companies to expand their reach beyond the boundaries of their industry. Um, the classic example is your cell phone. It's no longer a cell phone. It's also your ways of doing banking and provide payment options. The leading examples that we've observed uh, have been in the B2C front because you start to have players that create a platform to connect many consumers to providers of goods and services. Um, if you go to Asia, the social networks can be used uh, to provide insurance and banking and other services. The second way we see it play out, and it's beginning to happen, is that uh, you are able to now gather and collect enormous amount of information and data that allows you to provide uh, solutions in B2B. Um, GE has been quite known for making significant investments in similar platforms. You can imagine a number of companies being linked together to optimize an entire value chain. Think about the whole element of uh, servicing uh, large aircraft and being able to collect data about the way the engines have been used and therefore predicting when certain parts need to be replaced and incorporating that into the flight schedules of planes. You know, those are information database uh, ecosystems that you can apply across a number of industries within a certain type of transportation ecosystems, for instance. And those are the next generations that we see being on the rise in B2B environment, but probably more to be seen than what we have already observed with the right of you know, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent in the, in the B2C area. For a company that's looking at making a transition to digital, how important is it that the company can also be a good digital consumer? and not just be a good digital provider. What I mean is, how savvy do they need to be about how to take advantage of digital services themselves that are available to them in order to better serve their own customers? I think this is critical. It obviously is dependent on where you play in the value chain, but for most companies, they will see a um, symmetric effect of their customers wanting to interact with them digitally. So certainly the sales and service interactions become more digitized and richer as data is used to provide a you know, more personalized, more customized product or service. Um, but the same is true for you know, the other side of their business in terms of their providers. It's also true at another level, though, which is 
the technologies and tooling which is available to companies now on which to run their operations is improving extremely rapidly. Uh, so you to stand up a, a new business and to, to buy in all of the software and configure it historically might have taken uh, years. Often new businesses or, or BUs can be set up now on the cloud in a matter of a month or even weeks. Thank you, Paul. Tangi, is there anything you'd like to add to that? I think one of the big inheritance to the adoption of digital solutions that may already exist um, is executives' leadership knowledge and education about technology and digital. Uh, we found out that in a number of areas, the executives have not been growing up in the digital age, and therefore their ability to, to really think through how they can fully power uh, their, uh, their business through digital and provide the services that their providers are expecting is, uh, is often limited by their lack of knowledge. And uh, leading organizations are much more externally oriented, continuously on the lookout for what new solutions might be available. They typically have digital presence on their board. Uh, they have digital advisory uh, committees. Um, and so I would just add to Paul's answer the fact that in today's age, investing significantly in the education of your top executive around the role of technology analytics and digital is quite critical to be able to achieve what we are talking about here. And how much of that in terms of getting smart on digital is change of people versus taking the people you've already got and training them up? In your experience, the companies that do this really well, how do they strike that balance? I think it will vary based on um, the competencies that are needed to drive a digital transformation. Uh, my experience is in many of the organizations we are dealing with, the notion of listening to the voice of the customer and problem solving through empathy rather than through analytics is a muscle that doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, the rise of design thinking is a competency that you're better off addressing by acquiring the skill set externally. Uh, we as a firm had to go on that journey on our own with acquisitions of companies such as Lunar and other and a few bank and financial institutions are now discovering that. Uh, you then have a, a certain set of roles uh, that requires a skill set that is different than what companies truly believe it is. So you, you talk about the rise of analytics. Well, it turns out that data scientists uh, require a skill set and experience that also oftentimes benefit from uh, coming a little bit from the outside, uh, and so you will have a mix. Um, and then there are some um, skill set that we think you can and you should train your organization uh, about and over. So how you operate in an agile manner using the agile ceremonies, well, you can, you can train a part of your organizations to operate that way. So it's really a mix and it depends on the skill set, but I would say that um, most often than not, there is a significant need to inject new talent from the outside to be able to catalyze um, a sufficient level of momentum early on in the journey. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that um, most of the successful digital transformations that uh, we've witnessed have had a significant, and I mean at least a quarter, um, proportion of the uh, of the resources um, uh, come externally, either new hires or on a contract basis, um, at least during the initial phases um, to rapidly scale the capability. 
Uh, long term, most firms are seeing that these new tech capabilities are actually the core competence. So they are trying to ensure that they become uh, really core um, to the fabric of the organization and, and um, uh, are aggressively building these competencies. Uh, the good news is that we're finding that folks can be trained at all levels. There are good examples of chief executives taking themselves to night school and learning uh, all about these new te technologies. Uh, and equally down at the front line, uh, we're finding good success with uh, retraining. So following up, according to your article, 80% of companies are typically getting displaced by digital disruption. Can you talk a little bit more about the happy 20% that are, quote unquote, making it through the other side and some of the other things that they did to both survive and thrive? What the research suggests is uh, five elements. The first one is very early on, they're able to take a long-term view of their strategy versus your traditional budgeting exercise for a minimum resource reallocation year over year. Uh, and in the long-term view of the strategy, uh, they have a pretty good sense of the value at stake and a pretty good sense of the way they're going to differentiate themselves in the marketplace in terms of value creation for the customer. The second thing is typically they are willing to look at a broad set of scenarios, some of which are favorable for them, some of which are unfavorable for them, and they are developing a portfolio that, as Paul described earlier, can be resisting to change and shocks and volatility. Third thing is what they are willing to do in the early days of the transformation is pretty radical. Large level of investment, uh, significant commitment to a different way of working that typically entails much greater external orientations and partnerships, agile operating model, experimentations with new technologies, redesigned from a blank sheet of end-to-end -end customer journeys. The fourth element that you tend to see is over the course of the, the transformation, they tend to be investing more in technology and getting more out of operations. So they are managing their technology and operation budgets together, realizing that to drive operational efficiencies, they need to invest more in technology, similar in analytics. So they have a way of managing their budgets uh, that tends to be quite different. And then the fifth one, is what Paul was describing earlier. Uh, they make bold moves in terms of talent, inquisition of external talent in certain skill sets that are critical, but also not afraid of asking the people who are not committed to the change to leave the organization. Thank you for joining us inside the Strategy Room. You can find an edited transcript of this podcast on mckinsey.com, along with the latest insights from the strategy and corporate finance practice. Please be sure to connect with us there and on LinkedIn and Twitter.